Welcome to Dark Tube, TV's Wicked History. I'm Brian Hardigan. In the aftermath of the 2021 on-set shooting death of Russ cinematographer Helena Hutchins and wounding of director Joel Souza, speculation focused on possible negligence on the part of the film's weapons master or armorer. This is the person responsible for the show's guns and ammunition. But those terms are new ones in Hollywood. In the mid-80s, on-set weapons were handled by the show's general property master. Property covers everything from a coffee cup used on screen to a set of keys to guns and ammunition. In other words, a gun on the set of a show like Cover Up would be given only slightly more reverence than to say that of a camera used by Jennifer O'Neill on set. As such, there may have been this kind of misnomer back in those days that a quote-unquote prop gun was harmless. With very few exceptions, the weapons used in television and film productions are real, meaning you could film a scene with a gun that is empty and go outside, put a real bullet in it, and fire it off. They are not fake guns, and the gunpowder in blank rounds is not fake gunpowder a fact that Hollywood would be shockingly reminded of on October 12, When we last left John Eric Hexum, he was taking stock. Having earned some success with the ABC MOW The Making of a Male Model, and after landing a role in a highly publicized feature film, he relished being approached to star in a TV show by one of Hollywood's top producers. But with only five episodes of the show having aired
New writer-producer Bob Shane found himself scrambling to write new scripts without losing production days. Upon stepping into the head writer position, Shane set his sights on the show's fast-approaching seventh episode. To make things as smooth as possible, Shane asked Glenn Larson if he could dip into the past to maybe repurpose one of Larson's older scripts. Larson was all for the idea. In fact, Larson carried something of a Hollywood stigma for repurposing old ideas, some of which were not his own. Noted sci-fi writer Harlan Ellison once dubbed Glenn Larson Glenn Larceny for the producer's penchant for creating those TV smoothies, taking existing pop culture and repurposing them into his own TV shows. Actor James Garner had first-hand knowledge of Larson's pseudo-plagiarism. While working on The Rockford Files in 1975, Garner confronted Larson about ripping off stories from Rockford to use on Larson's new show Switch, starring Robert Wagner. According to Garner, when Larson tried to later copy Rockford's iconic theme song, Garner let him have it. I knocked him clear across the curb and into a motorhome, and he came out the other side, Garner wrote in his autobiography. Garner also wrote that he and his producers complained to the Writers Guild of America about Larson's thievery. The WGA slapped Larson with a fine and ordered him to amend the writing credit on the Switch episode Death by Resurrection to reflect its similarities to the Rockford Files episode This Case is Closed. And that's why today, in the writing credits of Switch, you'll find the name Stephen J. Cannell, Larson's then cross-network rival. But for cover-up, Larson apparently didn't think it was inappropriate to steal one of his own ideas. So when Shane suggested repurposing an old story for cover-up, Larson suggested The Old Diamond Game, the third episode of Switch, starring Robert Wagner. Actually, it was a story premise that Larson had used a few times before in his show Sword of Justice, Simon and Simon, and the Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo. If it worked four times before, Larson probably thought, why not five? The Switch episode, written by Larson and Michael Sloan, has the heroes going after a con artist who built some innocent folks out of a bunch of money. The heroes then put a sting on, comically playing against type, until the thief inadvertently gives them back the money he stole and is arrested. On cover-up, Mac and Danny come up with their con on the fly, bringing Danny's photo assistant, Rick, in on the sting. In the series, Rick is portrayed for dim-witted laughs by actor Michael T. Williamson, still a decade away from his breakout role as Bubba in Forrest Gump. So Rick now poses as a buyer for the thief's gold bars. For his part, Shane thought the script for Golden Opportunity turned out well, considering the fast turnaround. CBS didn't share his enthusiasm. When one CBS executive read Shane's script, he gave the note back that there wasn't enough, quote, action in the story. TV had changed in the last decade, it seemed, and stories from the cerebral 70s just wouldn't cut it in the action 80s. So Shane went back to work on the episode, keeping the general premise but adding in a through line of action scenes. They never used that word action, Shane told a Hexham fan site in 2009. The code word is action. That meant violence. Shane added a couple of fistfights, a car chase, and a side plot that has the big bad guy ordering Mac to prove his loyalty by killing Rick. The revised script now called for a scene set on a rocky outcrop of a Florida beach 
in which Mac shoots Rick. But to make it look real to the bad guy and the cops watching through binoculars, Mac uses a gun filled with blanks. Mac shoots Rick for everyone to see, dumps the body into the ocean, proves his loyalty, and the con goes on from there. The scene itself is pretty standard, if not really necessary. Remember Shane, if that network asshole hadn't pressured me, that scene wouldn't have been in the script, and that gun wouldn't have been in John Eric's hand. Filming on the revised script started on Monday, October 8th, and progressed as planned. On Thursday, October 11th, the scene where Hexum shoots Williamson was filmed without incident. Although, for budgetary reasons, Shane's Florida Beach is actually San Pedro, California, complete with background mountains. Later that night, Glenn Larson called Hexum over to his house for dinner to talk about how the show was going. Larson's 13-year-old daughter had a crush on him, and Hexum reciprocated by gifting her a cover-up director's chair with her name embroidered on it. And while their dinner conversation is unknown, it's likely the two talked about the state of the show, Larson's plans to fix it, and Hexum's concerns about his lack of input. As a show of good faith, the evening ended with Larson asking Hexum to join him in Colorado for the upcoming weekend. 20th Century Fox owner Marvin Davis, famous for his star-studded charity balls, was throwing one in Denver, and Larson wanted Hexum to come and meet and greet. Now, normally, Hexum would jump at the chance to press flesh with Hollywood bigwigs, but this time, he had to decline. See, he was scheduled to fly to Vegas that Friday night to tape his performance for Circus of the Stars. And though Larson wasn't too keen about having his star perch 50 feet above the ground, he knew Hexum well enough to know that once he committed to something, that was pretty much it. And Hexum was committed. Always athletic, Hexum had been training for his circus stunt for weeks. But as the taping date approached, he was getting worried. With cover-ups 15-hour workdays, Hexum had barely found time to practice the tightrope walk. And without the training it was possible producers wouldn't let him perform it on the show. The next day, Friday, October 12th, 1984, Greta Hexum and Bob Lamond flew to Las Vegas for the Circus of the Stars taping. Hexum and Daly would join them later in Vegas after filming had wrapped on cover-up. But by Friday afternoon, filming was not going well, and John Eric Hexum was getting frustrated. Earlier that Friday, Hexum had lunch on set with Daly, who had felt compelled to visit the actor instead of packing for her Las Vegas trip. She later said she saw no signs that Hexum appeared depressed or despondent, but he seemed rather grouchy with the delays in filming so far that day. Later, there were rumors that during the lunch, Hexum and a few others had been discussing the famous scene in The Deer Hunter in which the POWs are forced by their Vietnamese captors to play Russian roulette. This hasn't been confirmed. But after lunch, Daly returned home to pack for Las Vegas, and Hexum went to a swing set on stage 18 of the Fox lot. So a swing set is one that is built quickly for a specific scene and then torn down just as quickly. In this case, the swing set was that of a Florida hotel room. There was a bed and a cushioned headboard in seafoam green to match the bedspread, a wooden dresser with a console television, and two wood nightstands with white lamps. On the right side nightstand, the show's prop master placed a pair of pliers, 
a dozen or so blanks, and a few dummy rounds of ammunition. Now in Hollywood there are two types of rounds used during filming. The first are dummy bullets. These look exactly like live rounds except without gunpowder in the casing, so they're harmless. You generally see these strung along gunfighter belts in westerns. The second are blanks. Now these are generally filled with gunpowder which is tamped down into the casing with either cotton, plastic, paper, or wax stopper. Then the edges of the casing are crimped off to hold the stopper and the gunpowder in place. Now the amount of gunpowder in a blank can be changed depending on how much of a flash the director wants for the scene. In this case the blanks were loaded to a two-thirds charge. That means that only two-thirds of the normal amount of gunpowder was used. Lowering the charge in the blank also alters the bang of the shot, so a lower charge often helps to protect the hearing of the cast and crew in close quarters. The scripted scene called for Hexum to sit on the edge of the bed and load blanks into the gun before guest star Dick Durek arrives to take Mac to the hip. The prop master handed Hexum the prop gun he had used the day before in the beach scene with Michael T. Williamson. So scenes are often filmed out of order depending on actor and location availability, the scenes would be edited later into the proper order. But this hotel room scene did not call for Hexum's gun to be fired. So it's unclear why the blank rounds the prop master gave Hexum were loaded with gunpowder. The gun placed in Hexum's hand that day was a 1980 Smith & Wesson 44 caliber Remington Magnum 629 double action revolver. A double action means the gun had no hammer spur, that thing that gunfighters menacingly cock with their thumbs. The lack of a hammer spur is meant to provide an extra level of safety, preventing the gun from being cocked accidentally. Clint Eastwood famously brandished a 44 Magnum in his Dirty Harry pictures, but this 44 Magnum had been specially modified by the Magnaport Company, so that the barrel had been shortened from about 7 inches to 2.5 inches. Modifying or porting a gun reduces its recoil while also allowing for a brighter muzzle flash, and both of these modifications are ideal for Hollywood productions. Actors don't have to worry about the weapon's kickback, and the directors get bright, fiery gun blasts that look especially good on screen. But modifying this 44 Magnum also perhaps made it look deceptively less dangerous than it really was. Because this 44 Magnum now looked a little more like a snub nosed 22 instead of the most powerful handgun in the world. The order of events film that Friday afternoon plays like this. We start with a master shot or a wide shot of Max sitting on the edge of the bed. His blue checkered shirt unbuttoned to mid chest, his sleeves rolled up. He has a makeup bruise on his right temple due to an earlier on-screen fight, and Mac crimps the ends of the cartridge casings with the pliers, making his own blank rounds. Then, in a close-up, Mac carefully places the two crimped blanks into the revolver cylinder. Back to the master shot. Before Mac can add a third round, there's a knock at the door. So Mac stows the gun in a gym bag, covers the nightstand with a towel to hide the bullets, and gets up. 
The camera then awkwardly pans with Mac as he crosses the room and opens the door, revealing Ralph, the villain's main goon, again played by actor and stuntman Dick Durek. In that same master shot, Ralph tells Mac that it's time to go and kill Rick. Mac says, no, I work alone, but Ralph says, no, he's going with Mac to make sure he does it. The scene then cuts to an insert shot of Mac reaching into the gym bag, taking out the gun, opening the cylinder, spinning it, and then snapping it shut. And then back to the master shot as Ralph and Mac exit, closing the hotel door behind them. Now, on screen, this scene takes 52 seconds to play out, but it was taking hours to film. Director Sidney Hares, a veteran of many Glenn Larson shows, just wasn't getting the coverage he thought he needed. The first coverage, or camera angle, was the wide one, the master shot. But as Hares and the film crew moved the cameras and lighting to film the next angle, there were delays. Normally on a film set, during a break in filming, and when a weapon isn't being used in the scene, the prop master takes it back from the actor for safekeeping. For one reason or another, the property master on cover-up did not do this. Some have reported that during the delay, either Harris suggested or Hexham decided that he needed to practice loading the gun so it looked good on camera. After all, Mac Harper was supposed to be a weapons expert, so that could explain why Hexham kept the gun between takes. By 5 p.m., Hexham was growing impatient with the camera's setup delay. It had already been a long day, and with a plane to catch to Las Vegas, it was looking to be a long night. According to People magazine, the exhausted actor lied down and fell asleep. It is not clear, however, if this occurred on the hotel set bed or on a set adjacent to the swing set. When Hexham woke up 10 to 15 minutes later, ready to film the scene, he was told the new setup still wasn't ready. Referring to yet another delay, he may have said aloud for anyone to hear, Can you believe this crap? According to some of the 40 people on set that afternoon, Hexham then idly picked up the Prop 44 Magnum from the nightstand where he'd left it. He knew it was loaded because he'd practiced putting blank shells and dummy rounds into the cylinder. According to at least one witness, Hexham sat on the edge of that bed emptied the five casings into his palm, and reloaded the gun yet again during the delay. A few witnesses said Hexham removed all but one of the blanks from the gun, spun the cylinder, and snapped it shut. But according to police, there were two blanks and three dummy rounds in the gun when it was eventually fired. One witness told LA Weekly that Hexham had first fired the gun at the floor as a joke, causing a stir on the set but this is unlikely and contradicts the one-bullet witness account. Another witness reported that Hexham spun the cylinder and said, let's let Guido decide, Guido supposedly being the name of the prop master on cover-up. However, there is no Guido listed in the show's credits. Okay, so far these are all wildly varying accounts from individual witnesses, but what an overwhelming majority of the witnesses reported next is that Hexham called out, Let's see if I've got one for me. Then he raised the gun. It's likely that Hexham figured that all that would happen would be a click and everyone would have a good laugh. Hexham was, by all accounts, playful and boyish in nature, a joker. And by other accounts, he also wasn't very mechanically inclined, so he may not have known the dangers inherent in a live weapon 
especially a small-looking 44 Magnum, even if it was loaded with just blanks, and even if those blanks were only loaded to two-thirds charge. Regardless, Hexum then put the gun to within an inch of his right temple. He made a silly face. When he pulled the trigger, it was 5.15 p.m. What happened next is compiled from a number of sources. There was a loud bang, a bright muzzle flash, and a puff of black smoke as John Eric Hexum let out a wounded cry. The shot seemed to stun and confuse him as he briefly remained sitting upright on the edge of the bed. One report had him muttering, Oh, God. Then he fell back, convulsing, his fingers petrified around the gun handle. Witnesses said he remained conscious for only a split second before closing his eyes. A dime-sized hole in his right temple began gushing blood. On set, there was instant confusion. Shouts of, oh no, and oh my god. One crew member started screaming for help and ran to the soundstage next door where Fall Guy was filming. Other crew members rushed to the actor's side. Someone wrapped his head in a towel to staunch the bleeding. One of the guest actors, likely Dick Durock, put his finger in Hexum's mouth to either prevent him from swallowing his tongue or to help unclench his jaw so he could breathe. Durock was a former U.S. Marine. The show's hairdresser, Dino Ganziano, checked Hexum's pulse, which was thready but there. Another crew member pried the gun out of Hexum's clenched hand as someone on set called out for an ambulance. But someone else recognized there was no time for that. A stagehand found a prop wooden door nearby and used it as a makeshift stretcher, laying it beside Hexum and pulling him onto it. The crew then carried Hexum off the set and into the parking lot, where another crew member had backed up a Fox Studios station wagon. Less than a minute after the shot, two Fox employees had loaded the door carrying Hexum into the back of the wagon, leaving the back hatch open for his six-foot-one frame. The station wagon then raced through the studio gates with Hexum's feet resting on the back bumper. Whoever was driving made the quick decision to turn right to bring Hexum to nearby Beverly Hills Medical Center. BHMC was a small hospital and not accustomed to traumatic cases, but it was much closer than a larger hospital. During the mile-long drive there, Hexum lost four pints of blood. Once admitted to BHMC, doctors stopped the bleeding and assessed Hexum's condition. His vital signs remained strong, one hospital spokesperson told the media, which had already begun assembling in the parking lot. Given the nature of the wound, the doctors initially thought Hexum was suffering from a normal gunshot. When informed his wound was actually caused by a fired blank round, Dr. David Ditsworth and a team of neurosurgeons wheeled Hexum into surgery. During a five-hour craniotomy, doctors discovered what had happened. When the gun was fired, there was enough gunpowder in the blank round to push the capping wad through the crimped end of the casing. So that wad of paper or cotton struck Hexum's temple with what is called flame cutting, the force of the blast from the gunpowder out of the barrel. The wad then smashed into Hexum's temple with enough force that it caused a quarter-sized piece of skull to break off 
and travel six inches into his brain. It wasn't the wadding that caused so much damage. It was his own skull fragment. That piece of bone lodged deep into Hexum's brain and caused massive hemorrhaging on the entire right side of his head. Dr. Ditsworth and the surgeons did their best to try to repair the skull fracture, but the bone fragment was too deep in his brain to be removed. As Hexum's friends gathered in the hospital waiting room, doctors stabilized him and placed him on sedatives. This essentially put him in a medically induced coma, one from which he would never awake. As Friday the 12th turned into Saturday the 13th, Hexum was on a ventilator. When news spread of the incident Saturday, papers reported that he was in critical condition. His personal publicist, Guy Thomas, told reporters that doctors didn't expect his condition to change for several days. But friends and fans were hopeful, swamping the Beverly Hills Medical Center with calls and letters. Hexum's former college drama coach, Kay Hickey, told one reporter, He's a strong, good person. If he recovers, it wouldn't slow him down. He knows where he's going and how to get there, so I figure he'll just get right out of bed and get back to work. But Hexum remained on life support all day Saturday. The night before, Greta Hexum had flown in from Las Vegas, and his brother Gunner flew in from Boston to be with his brother and mother. Also at the hospital that weekend was Elizabeth Daly and his cousin, TV news reporter Eric Paulson. On E's Mysteries and Scandals, Paulson recalls telling his Aunt Greta, if he ever wakes up, I'm going to kill him. Friends and family kept vigil by his bedside and in the waiting room. None made statements to the media. At the family's request, the hospital stopped giving updates on the actor's condition, because privately, the doctors told them that they were not hopeful for a change. That night, cover-up saw an uptick in the ratings from the morbidly curious. And meanwhile, LAPD detectives sealed Stage 18 at Fox and began their investigation. But it didn't take long. By Monday, Lieutenant Mike Carpenter told reporters, We don't know if he was showing off or why he did it. From those who saw the incident, we're ruling it accidental. Hexham's co-star Jennifer O'Neill had been on the set but in her trailer when the incident occurred. She told Orange Coast Magazine in 1985, My initial reaction was, oh, he'll be fine. It was a very difficult thing to digest. A lot of people were on the set who saw what happened. I had to take the role of being very positive and calm. I just didn't want to think he wouldn't be anything but all right. By some bizarre coincidence, O'Neill knew what it felt like to be shot. In October of 1982, she accidentally shot herself in the stomach with a handgun at her 10-acre estate in Bedford Hills, New York. Another scandal, perhaps, for another time. But the incident made O'Neill wary of guns, which was ironic since she often used one on the show. She later recalled telling Hexham to be careful with onset firearms. On Tuesday, October 16th, O'Neill went to visit Hexham. He was hooked up to all kinds of machines and a respirator. He had no shirt on and he was lying in bed so peacefully. I could see his chest rise and fall as breath was forced into his lungs, but he wasn't there anymore. Former girlfriend Emma Sams also visited Hexham, as did his other cover-up co-star Richard Anderson. It was sad, he told E's Mysteries and Scandals in 1999. That would be my best observation of it. With Hexham in the ICU on life support, 
Greta and Gunnar Hexum knew John Eric's prognosis was not good. As they began discussing what to do next, so were the executives at CBS. The day of the incident, Friday, Cover-Up had two episodes in the can, as in they were ready to air. That gave the network two weeks until they were forced to air repeats until new episodes could be filmed. So with only a handful of already produced episodes, that didn't give CBS much leeway when it came to those reruns. Determined not to cancel the show and scuttle CBS's investment in it, producers, including Glenn Larson, decided to get back to work. On Monday morning, just 36 hours after the incident, cover-up returned to Stage 18 to finish filming Golden Opportunity. According to Brian O'Dowd, the set was eerily quiet. People were silent, he wrote in 1985, and some were in tears. As O'Neill wrote in her 1999 autobiography, Surviving Myself, we never shut down production and I worked through the week, only days after the accident. I was never able to grieve. I couldn't cry because if I did, my eyes would grotesquely swell and I wouldn't be able to shoot. Somehow, O'Neill and the rest of the cast and crew made it through three additional days of filming. But Shane scrambled to rewrite the end of the script. For scenes that were supposed to feature Hexum, producers used a body double and some creative editing. A planned ending was scrapped and producers used a previously filmed shot of Hexum in a phone booth as Mac makes a call to Danny to wrap up the story. A voice impersonator was used for his dialogue in that scene. Golden Opportunity eventually aired Saturday, November 3rd, and its higher ratings reflected that many columnists reminded viewers it would be Hexum's last. Producers drew controversy, however, for electing to use Hexum's actual hotel room scene, filmed just minutes before the gunshot, in their final edit and other critics would point out with disgust that the show's opening credits still featured Hexum's name, accompanied by the image of a firing gun. Ironically, the episode came out rather well, said Bob Shane later, except, of course, it had a complete pall over it. On Wednesday, October 17th, filming on Golden Opportunity wrapped, and CBS announced that the show would go on a brief hiatus while the network and producers figured out what to do next. CBS President Bud Grant told the media that no official decisions had been made except, quote, Our intention is to keep the show going with minimal interruption, but we plan to keep the series in its current time slot, unquote. He neglected to add that auditions for Hexen's replacement had already begun. By Thursday, October 18th, doctors stopped giving Hexen medication and sedatives. This was because they needed his body drug-free when they performed an electroencephalogram. This EEG would tell doctors what kind of brain activity Hexum had, if any, but the result of the EEG was not good. Despite the family's request for a media blackout, one nurse told reporters, The EEG is flat, and it's been written on his chart. He's brain dead. Beverly Hills Medical Center notified the Los Angeles County coroner. Under California law, the moment of death occurs only when two doctors independently declare there is no further brain function. The doctors made that declaration at 7.31 p.m. Hexum was 18 days shy of his 27th birthday. In the meantime, 
Greta and Gunnar had elected to honor their son's wishes about organ donation. According to one later article, Hexum signed an organ donation card only a few months earlier after hearing about his roommate's sick cousin who needed a new liver. Still, the decision perhaps wasn't a difficult one for the Hexum family. John Eric was on a respirator for six days, Gunnar told CBS News magazine West 57th in 1985, and we were just with him all the time, and my mom and I just carried on a civil conversation that there is a family someplace that is like us and they need our help. With that decision made, Hexum's body was kept on life support, and a call was made to the Regional Organ Procurement Agency, or ROPA. Their job is to find suitable recipients for donor organs as they become available. ROPA's desire was to have Hexum's heart go to someone close by, but a cross-match for blood type in their computer database turned up no suitable recipients in L.A. It was then that ROPA heard of Michael Washington in Las Vegas and confirmed he was a match. Initially, the organization made plans to remove Hexum's heart in Los Angeles and fly it to San Francisco for a transplant. But Washington's doctor didn't think his patient had that long to wait. So Ropa took the unusual step of flying Hexum's entire body, still on life support, to San Francisco via chartered jet. Surgeons at Stanford University Medical Center were there on standby, waiting for the arrival of the patient and the still-beating heart that would save his life. On our next episode, John Eric Hexum lives on in the bodies of six people who received his organs. But soon, his family and fans would learn that while the transplant bank matches donors and recipients by blood type, character doesn't enter into the equation. Meanwhile, Glenn Larson and CBS soldier on with cover-up, though their rushed quest to find Hexum's replacement comes up empty, putting the future of the show and the jobs of hundreds of people in doubt. And finally, the shooting incident opens a slew of investigations, some of which raise doubts about Hexum's motives and pose questions as to who may have been responsible for his death. Thank you for listening to Dark Tube, TV's Wicked History. The show is written, edited, and narrated by me, Brian Hardigan. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, be sure to check out the show notes. Music for this season is provided by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. You can find his music on YouTube and Spotify. If you like this show, please spread the word. Subscribing to this channel is always appreciated, as is sharing it on social media or leaving a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at tube underscore dark Instagram at DarkTubeTVHistory, that's one word, or Facebook at DarkTubeTVHistory. And if you like what we're doing here and would like to contribute, please visit our Patreon account to consider signing up as a patron. That's patreon.com slash DarkTubeTVHistory. If you have suggestions for a story to cover, or if you have the inside scoop on a wicked part of television's past, drop me an email at darktubetvhistory at gmail.com. 
but based on the response so far, I'm hoping to release a bonus episode of Season 1 that will answer some of your questions and clarify or expand some elements of our storylines. Now, if you'd like to be a part of that episode again, please drop me a line. Be sure to tell me your first name and your location, and I'll mention it on the show. Again, that's darktubetvhistory, one word, at gmail.com, or add us on Twitter at tube underscore dark. We'll be back soon with the final installment of our investigation into John Eric Hexum's tragic death with an episode called Aftermath. So until then, stay tuned and don't touch that dial for more of the scandalous past of our favorite pastime. This has been a production of Hot Mush Media.